So a few years ago, I was, uh, I guess it's been boy, about seven years ago now, uh, I started riding a bike again. The first time since my teenage years, uh, maybe early college when it was necessity that I was still riding a bike. Uh, but I began riding a bike around, and this is while we were living in Kansas City. And uh, what was interesting is I would actually ride it for transportation places. And so I'd go on these routes that I usually drove by car. And doing so, I was shocked the details you began to see along the way. Um, that I just missed when I would take a car. There were uh, scents from certain trees, usually good, sometimes not so good. Uh, you know, a, a pond behind some brush that I had no idea was ever there. I drove past it every day. Uh, these detail on these mailboxes as you'd go by, you had no idea were there. Uh, and it was kind of this wonderful experience to, to, uh, to see these details. And the thing that I, I found was that by going slower uh, through these sections, I was I was seeing all these details that I absolutely would have missed if I was, when I was just blown by in the car. Um, and, and so that's kind of what we've been doing in this book of Ephesians. And, and I tell you that, you understand that, you know, we could come in here on a Sunday and read through the book of Ephesians in a little over 20 minutes and, and just, you know, be done and move on to the next thing. But uh, we've been going through at this incredibly slow pace. And the reason is, is uh, that we're seeing these details in the text that you're going to miss if you blow through it. Um, and there is a lot of detail in, in what Paul is writing in these portions uh, that I want us to see. And I don't want us to miss this eternal truth that has been uh, revealed by God, that was written down by Paul and, and for us. So uh, that being said, it's also good to have a wide-angle idea of what's going on. Uh, and just as a, a reminder that uh, in chapter 1, as we were beginning in Ephesians, what we saw was that uh, we have all received through our union with Christ uh, amazing spiritual blessings. Um, and then chapter 2, the first seven verses really described our situation apart from Christ in general. Every man, every woman, every uh, girl, every boy, uh, and that's the case. And then in last week, we saw that amazing portion, verses 8 through 10, and that's almost the place in the book of Ephesians that you just kind of want to stop and end with, right? This uh, amazing picture of God's sovereign grace in redeeming us from our sin, uh, this giving us new life, new purpose, and and to, to just kind of stop there. And yet, uh, the passage goes on, and there's good reason for it, as we're going to see. Uh, the rest of this chapter is going to show us these, these different aspects of what life was like before Christ and, and who we are in Christ today. Uh, and that has to do with right at the core of who we are, our identity. So uh, let's just get to the passage. It's a little bit of an introduction there. But uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and we're just going to go through verse 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by the hands, remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once, who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in Psalm 119, your servant wrote, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. God, we ask now that you would give us understanding of your word. 
to give us light to your work of salvation in the history of the world. God, grant us this morning that the concerns of this past week and the concerns of the upcoming week will be set aside so that we may have minds focused on your holy word in the second chapter of the letter of Ephesians. We ask this in the great name, uh, great name of our, our friend and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So you'll notice our passage begins with that word, therefore, which I think as a pastor I'm supposed to ask you the, the phrase, you know, we're supposed to wonder what is it there for. Um, the idea here, though, is that uh, it's, it's there because it is tying these words to what has come before. And we've looked at that a little bit in the introduction uh, that we saw last week, right? That one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture about our salvation, about our salvation being a gift of God that has been given to us, that it is not a result of works. And so that's kind of the point that he's, he's building off of. Uh, that nobody earns the grace of God that we simply receive it from the hand of God. And so uh, keep in mind this morning that, uh, that our text that we're looking at this morning is, is an actual letter. Sometimes we forget that, there's, that these fit into certain genres in that sense, that this was a letter that was written from Paul to the church in Ephesus. And in the church in Ephesus was this mixed group of people. There were the Gentiles, uh, Gentile Christians, and there were the Jewish Christians. And... Uh, and so Paul's focus on the passage this morning is to the Gentiles. Uh, that's a word, if you're not real familiar with it, it means anyone who is not Jewish. That is most of you in this room. Um, and, and so he is asking them right from the start to remember something. He's asking them to remember where they have come from. And you see, while we, we all love to have these, these memories of our, our past, our histories, you know, it's, it's mostly the good things that we like to remember, summer camps we went to, or a simpler way of life that we, we remember, you know. We, we don't as much like to enjoy the darker times of our lives. Those are the ones we want to push off. Uh, from time to time, I'll, I'll hear someone even give the advice that, you know, you just forget your past and only focus on, on the now and the, and the future. And, and Paul doesn't do that, and I appreciate that he doesn't do that. He doesn't bury the past, and, and his reason is that, that this illustrates the grace of God in our lives. Because it, it humbles us, it, it forces us to consider our own prejudice. Uh, and, and so Paul is telling these new Christians, remember Remember, yes, do look backwards and remember. Um, Christians, do you, do you do that? I mean, particularly those that came to faith at a later age, you know, um, do you remember? Do you remember what life was like before God rescued you from the gospel? And for some of you, that's a memory of, of rampant immorality. It doesn't have to be that, though. Maybe it, it wasn't that. Maybe it was just anxious nights, laying awake, struggling to make sense out of the world that you find yourself living in, kind of that, that tight-chested fear of, of your own inevitable death. Maybe the, the morality wasn't the issue at all. But he's reminding them here that at one time, before this time, that they were separated from Christ. And so he reminds them that, that they were called the uncircumcision. That is a, a term there, and, and there's significance here. And it's not so much the, act, the physical act of it, but it's more about uh, what this means for them, that they were outside God's covenant people. Uh, also, you've understood that 
you know, it, it's hard for us sometimes to understand how the Gentiles would have felt in the early church. We tend to think of it as this happy union all the time. Uh, and that's just not the case because uh, the Jewish people up to this point in history and still a lot, you know, ingrained into them at this point was this idea that, that the Gentiles were dirty people. We're supposed to stay away from those people. Those are second-rate people that are just, um, you know, there was a self-righteousness that would look down on the Gentiles in that way. It's, a, it's kind of like, you know, that, that racist uncle that shows up at Thanksgiving, you know, and, and, and that's kind of the idea we're talking about, the one that makes you really uncomfortable. Uh, and so, you know, the Jewish culture didn't help much either. There was this, this disdain that the Jews felt toward the Gentiles, and, and it was set up in the way that the temple was set up to exclude the, the Gentiles. Uh, we mentioned this back in Acts. I'll mention it again, though. There were courtyards. You had the Holy of Holies, and then you had the, uh, the, uh, the court of Israel, and, and, and then there was the court of, of Gentiles, and there were some other ones, but those are the main ones to talk about right now. And, and the idea was that you couldn't go beyond this certain point. There were actual walls and gates, and in one of them, uh, between the Gentiles, they couldn't go into the next gate uh, at all. And, and at that gate, there was this four-and-a-half-foot-tall sign, and written on that sign in both Greek and Latin was a statement saying that Gentiles are not to enter here. And if they do, they will have their own death on their own hands. You are responsible for what's going to happen to you. And they didn't mean some mystical thing. They meant that the people will kill you if you walk through this. Uh, can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you walked in church this morning and, and you saw a sign at the bottom of those stairs that said, you know, um, you know, because of whatever race you are or whatever your background might be, that it's okay that you come in the foyer area. It's okay that you're in here, but don't you dare go up those stairs and into that sanctuary. Because if you enter that sanctuary, your death will be on your own hands. I mean, can you imagine that? And then suddenly those, those people start to invite you in. And I know, I, I hear it too, you know, this is, this is our national history, right? A, a time of segregation. Um, and yet, very few of you in this room have any idea what that would have even felt like. So it's a difficult, difficult thing for us to get our heads around, uh, particularly being people in a position of privilege in our own culture. And so then Paul actually takes a little jab at the Jewish believers who are, who are also receiving this letter. Remember, they're reading it out loud to the people, and so the Jewish the Jewish people are hearing this as well. And you see that phrase in verse 11, it says, made in the flesh by hands. Saying that, you know, circumcision was, was an outward sign of the covenant, and it was a good thing. But, but a greater thing is that that sign actually corresponds to an in, inward reality. It says, Romans 2.29 tells us when it says, uh, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Uh, it, it may help us to think of this in, in terms of the new, uh, the new Testament equivalent to circumcision, which is baptism. It's a, it's a wonderful, nourishing mark initiating our entrance into the covenant community. Uh, but our salvation is not on the basis of our water baptism. Whether it is, is received as, a, as an infant, a, a child who is born into that covenant community, or if it is received as a, a newly professing older child or adult who is coming into the community by a profession of faith, See, what's of, of greater importance than that is, is that we are baptized by the Spirit, that we have uh, trusting faith in Jesus Christ, that, uh, that God's Spirit dwells in us, that we find rest in the glorious news of the, of the gospel. That's, that's the more important thing in that regard. And you see, there is a, a spiritual reality to these, these physical signs. 
it, it was true for the Jews then. It's, it's true for us today as well that uh, there is this beautiful continuity in the scripture that we see here. And, and Paul here is, is calling for the Jews. You've got to understand this, what's really happening here. Paul is calling for the Jews to stop acting self-righteous because they are Jews. And he is calling for the Gentiles to stop feeling second-rate because they are Gentiles. And for both of them to truly realize that they both find salvation through union with Christ. You see, it matters not who you were before, but rather whose you are now. And as both Jew and Gentile are able to answer that, we, we find this rock-solid unity, and that's where Paul's going. See, remember the, the fact that, that Paul is addressing this, and I mentioned this before, but again, it means that, that unity was a struggle for them. Because he's not just saying, you guys are wonderfully unified, carry on. You know, he's addressing an actual issue in the first century church. And what we might not expect then is that, that Paul seeks to bring unity. And he actually begins by reminding the Gentile, the Gentile Christians just how different they are. Just how different their background actually is. And his motives are pure and he is leading them into this place uh, of greater gratitude. Um, Laura and I were, were watching a reality TV show. And I'll just call it that so you can't judge us unless you actually have watched this and know this story. But, uh, and, and one of the, the women on the show spent her, her childhood in this, this orphanage in, in Russia. And, and there was an American couple, she was an older age, an American couple who wished to adopt her and to bring her back to the United States uh, when she was old enough. And she was old enough to be included in this decision. She knew what was going on. And, and one of her teachers there in Russia um, really understood. She knew that if she stayed in Russia, that her future was likely going to end up in, in prostitution or some other heartbreaking means of survival for her life uh, after she was too old to remain in the, in the orphanage. And this teacher explained to her, if, if you stay here, if you stay in Russia, if you stay in this orphanage with your friends, we understand that, then, then your life is going to be in black and white. But if you go with this American couple that wants to adopt you, then, then your life will be in color. And those words stuck with her. That idea stuck with her. And she ultimately did come to America. She was adopted. And, and she remembers this very well. Uh, it's a big aspect of her life and her history. And, and, and she understands what life was like beforehand. And, and the gratitude that she feels and expresses for the life she now lives is something that, that puts most Americans, myself included, to absolute shame. Because she can remember what life was like beforehand. And so let us, let us remember... Christians, you know, let us remember what life and eternity would be like for us if God did not rescue us from our lives of rebellion. Which is very similar to what he tells the Gentiles here. Um, you know, look in our text here, we'll see a couple of things here. You know, back in, or not back in, in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, Paul list the privileges of the Jews throughout the years, and, and he you know, includes the giving of the law. They received the law from God, the, the covenants that they are included in, the, uh, the idea of, of true worship, and so on. In our text today, I don't know if you notice it when we go by too quickly, but he's listing five disadvantages that the Gentiles have. And, and like I said, he's writing to this mixed audience, and he's describing uh, the, to the Gentiles, and yet amazingly... Um, these are the, true of everyone on the planet today. Everyone who, who lives apart from the gospel. And so think through these disadvantages. The first disadvantage of the Gentiles is that they were separated from Christ. 
You know, many of, of you Army spouses and uh, Army children know too well what separation feels like. You know, as your, your husband or your wife or your father is, is deployed for the greater part of the year. And, uh, and as Paul is, is building this argument here, we're going to see that the separation that Paul is speaking about is even sadder than, than that separation because there was no union beforehand that he's speaking of, and there's no expected union later. There's just this, this separation. You know, rather, all the, all the benefits that, that we've seen in Ephesians from our union with Christ, you know, these are the things that are missing, the adoption, the spiritual blessings, redemption, forgiveness, that, that grace has been lavished upon us, that there is an internal inheritance, and so much more is lacking because of their separation from Christ. And then he lists the second disadvantage of the Gentiles here in verse 12. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not part of this this national identity of Israel. Um, you know, as Jesus, Jesus told the woman at the well in, in John 4.22, he said, you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is, is from the Jews. This was an, an expected thing. There was hope within the Jews. And as this continues to unfold, you'll see this more. The, the third disadvantage of the, of the Gentiles is given is that they were strangers of the covenants of promise. Strangers of the covenant of promise. A covenant uh, is like a promise, right? So it seems like a redundant statement. And uh, it's a promise that is made and enjoyed often in, in the most intimate of relationships. One of the most um, widely seen examples of a covenant in the world today is, is marriage. Uh, you know, your identity should, should not be found in marriage, but there is a great intimacy in the marriage relationship. It is a, a, a safe place, a comforting place in ways that are rarely found in other relationships. And see, God made a, a covenant promise to Abraham. He, he promised something that seems so simple to us, but he promised that he would be his God. That's a big deal. Uh, he also promised to be the God of his children and his children's children and every generation beyond that. And so God then confirmed and expanded this promise by, by renewing the covenant later with Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. And, and this promise was this divine assurance of good. I mean, do you hear that? This divine assurance of good that God would care for them uh, as his people, that God would send a redeemer, that, uh, you know, and, and this gave the Jewish people hope even in times of great suffering. But the Gentiles, they had not received those same promises. The promise was not to them. They had no assurance that, of God's goodness to them or towards them, no promise of, rede of a redeemer. And then the fourth disadvantage of the Gentiles listed here is that they were having no hope. I, I think we underestimate the comfort of hope, and the Gentiles and everyone apart from Christ today are ultimately without hope. Even if someone can name something they're hoping in, they're, they're really without hope. Uh, question 19, you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, speaks to this hopeless misery when it asks this question, what is the misery of the estate wherein two men fell? Um, what resulted from Adam's sin in the garden? That, that's what the question is. And the answer given in the, in the catechism is this. It says, all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made li liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Uh, years ago in, in Kansas City, when I was teaching a, a freshman theology class, I, I gave an exam on, on that one question. We would study these questions and try to 
open up what the actual meanings were. And, and the answers were overwhelmingly in, encouraging, but one answer I found uh, so well worded, worded that it stuck with me all these years later. The, the question on the exam was asked, what is the difference between the experience of believers and unbelievers in this life and at death? Um, and I included the quote in your, your reflective quote to the beginning of the bulletin if you want to see it. But this was a, a 13-year-old girl named Harriet who wrote this. She said, all of the pain in this world is the closest we will ever get to hell. And all the happiness in this world is the closest that unbelievers will ever get to heaven. In death, we have God to comfort us, but the unbeliever has no one. And that's the point, you know, here. That's the, the point also of 1 Thessalonians 4.13, which, which teaches us, but, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, our, our pains in life are real. They are very real. You know, whether it's an emotional pain, whether it's, it's sadness from loss, whether it's physical pain and disease of all sorts, you know, even the real prospect of, of death. And yet, as, as miserable as these things are in our lives, they are, they are certainly the worst that a believer will ever face because of the gift of faith that, that Christ so graciously gives. And so while we may lose everything in the life, I can't promise you, you know, when someone comes to faith, you can't promise that life's going to go well. Uh, and while we might lose everything in life, in, in Christ, we cannot lose our eternal home with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. That's a hope if you, if you understand it, if you, you feel that. You, you, it is a comfort no matter what's going on in your life. But to Paul's point, the, the Gentiles here were without hope. And the fifth disadvantage of the Gentiles is that they were without God in the world, without God. Um, See, in, in Greek, theos is the word for God. You, you hear it in the word theology, study of God. Um, also in Greek, the, the, the letter alpha, which is just like an English A, um, negates a word. And, and so here at the start of verse 12, there is this word atheoi. You might recognize it as the English equivalent of atheist, atheist. Um, which we, we know as a really specific philosophical idea that, that states that there is no God. Uh, when Paul says it, he means it a little more broadly in, in this sense. You know, many, you know, many of the Gentiles living in Ephesus at this, at this time would have actually worshipped a god, a god that they, uh, the god of Artemis or some other local deity. And at this point, uh, and, and his point is that whether they deny any existence of God or if they are worshipping a, a false god, then they are without the true god of the universe. Even, even today, some worship false deities, while others will, will pursue the, the glory of success, um, the, the glory of themselves, you know, some hedonistic pleasure in life, and yet all apart from Jesus are ultimately without God in the world. And, and when we meet people in our lives who are without God, I think there's a, a tendency of Christians to get angry at that. And I, I want to remind you that as, as Christians, we shouldn't get angry at that, um, it ought to make us terribly sad. It ought to invoke in us a compassion for these people because they are without a relationship with the one ancient hope. They are without a relationship with the true and the living God. They do not know Yahweh because they do not know Christ. And there is no hope apart from Jesus our Lord. 
I mean that. I mean, I mean for real. I mean, what hope can you, can you even suggest apart from Christ? You know, can, can you imagine if your only hope in death is that maybe, maybe you're right and, and there really isn't a God and that's your hope? You know, consistency to that view will, will take a person to incredible despair. You know, why, why live today if the only hope death might offer you is that you simply don't exist? You know, well, to serve people, right? But even every person you might try to serve, they're, they're not going to exist either. So what's the point? You know, when, when someone really embraces that view, they will find that when they, when they sit down to, to just make a list about life, about what really matters, that, 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 that list, that page is going to remain absolutely blank. That is the only consistency way, consistent way to live that way. You know, apart from the gospel, there really is no eternal hope. Uh, so let's look at verse 13, our last verse today. This, this verse really begins a new section that will... Um, one after another then show us the blessings that we do receive uh, that are received by all who rest in, in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it begins with that, that change of direction phrase that we know so well now, but now, right? Uh, we've been looking at what was true, uh, and now we're going to see what, what is true for them, what is true in the gospel. And so, uh, you know, that was your past. This is your present. This is your future. And so uh, the verse continues, but now in Christ Jesus. See, everybody comes into the kingdom of God through the same door, through Jesus Christ. He is that door. And, and so whether we're talking about Jew, whether we're talking about Gentile, uh, whether we're talking about someone today who was born into a Christian home and, you know, learned scripture, the catechism or whatever it might be, or someone who was born into a secular home, uh, it is through Jesus Christ that we all come to be part of this same family. This family where, where our identity is found. See, no matter our past, whether that be <clears throat> shameful sin or, or shameful self-righteousness, today in Christ we are made not only holy, but also into one family. We have this, this new identity of, of being in Christ, this new identity that is greater than any other identity that you might carry with you, right? Uh, greater than the fact that you're American or Brazilian or Zimbabwean or whatever nationality you might be. And when we know this new identity, it can be, it can be powerful in our Christian walks. So, you know, um, say you're, you're going through your day and you just have this terrible spiritual day by your own assessment. You, you find yourself sinning in some way that is just discouraging. Um, maybe you've even pursued this sin. And, and when that guilt hits you, when, when you realize, you know, how badly you failed, that's, that's the moment when this new identity tells us, you know, go to the cross with this new identity. And you go to the cross, not so that you can be sacrificed on it, but so that you can look to the cross and see that Christ has already been sacrificed for you. You know, so that we can remember and, and we are encouraged by, by this truth. You know, when um, Romans 8.1, I'll, I'll tell you this, it says this. This is for our memory, this is for our remembering. There is therefore no, are now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's... That's the kind of thing that sustains you when you find yourself struggling. Paul then speaks in verse 13 about uh, those who were once far off and how they have now been brought near. Nearness is about 
closeness. It's about having actual access to God. And, and one of the greatest privileges any person can have is to be near to God. Um, you know, you think of, uh, of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve there. They, you know, one of the greatest things about that was that they were dwelling near to God. He would walk in the garden with them. And then, and then after Adam's sin that resulted in, in banishment from the garden, right? Uh, that closeness was lost, but, but not forever. You know, it was lost geographically. It was lost in, in its intimacy. And yet God did not remain far from them. Uh, even as, as soon as Deuteronomy 4, 7, regarding the Jewish people, the author uh, is showing this gratitude to God for his nearness when he says, uh, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? It's that gratitude for God's nearness. Um, you know, unlike some imagine God did not set the world in motion and, and simply walk away like an absentee landlord. And while God has been close to his covenant people, the same nearness was lacking for these Gentiles. And so uh, you can imagine how wonderful this is for the Gentile Christians to, to hear this as it's coming around. And he's saying, he's saying here, you know, listen, there was a time when you were far from God, but not anymore. Not anymore. Now God has brought you near to him through Christ. You have become near to God now you are part of the family of God. In the book of Romans, uh, verse, uh, chapter 9, beautiful chapter, verse 26, we read, And in the very place where it was said of them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And to be sure we, we really understand what that means, you know, God has not, um, he's not brought all Gentiles as if it's some universalism. What this is speaking is, is that rather God has brought all who look to Jesus with faith near to God. Um, and, and so we're beginning to finally see in this passage then this, this unity that, that Paul is seeking to foster in the Ephesian ch in church. Ephesian church. And, 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 and it's not just unity, right? The whole world speaks of unity, but this is, this is gospel unity. This is unity brought about by, by God himself. Uh, the Jews here, you know, might, might still want to boast. You know, we're, we're the Jews. We're the people of God. We have received the covenant, uh, of, you know, the covenant sign of circumcision. You know, we have received the, the law from God. And, and Paul is pointing out to them that sign doesn't actually grant you forgiveness of sin. You know, if they, if they want to boast that they've received, you know, the ceremonial law, well, well, it's great. It's a wonderful blessing for these people. It does not bring them near to God in, the, in this way. See, circumcision was a good thing, having the law. This is a, a really great thing, but they do not provide what is truly needed in salvation. I was trying to think of how to, to give you an explanation of this. And so imagine if, uh, you know, if John uh, were to tell me that, you know, he and I are going to go to the Backstreet Boys concert coming up. You can imagine, this is true, right? Uh, and, and John says, look, I've, I've got a Backstreet Boys concert shirt. And, and he's showing me, he's got it, telling me all the names of the people on there. And he knows them well. And, and I'm like, John, that's great. Um, and then he tells me how he's memorized the lyrics to all the Backstreet Boys songs. And I tell him, that's fantastic. And, and still, the, the real question in this situation, though, is, is, John, do you actually have a ticket to the concert? Because when you get there, you know, they're, uh, they're not going to care so much that, 
that you have the shirt on. They're not going to care so much that you can sing all the songs there. That, you know, and, and that's where, where this really, um, there's this humbling unity that Paul is bringing to the church here in Ephesus. Because, you know, even though John's been a Backstreet Boy follower his entire life, and, and I've just begun to see how great the Backstreet Boys are, we both need the same ticket to get into that concert. That's, that's where it's really at. And I know, this is a weird illustration, right? You're questioning my sanity about now, but hear me out. Uh, you know, as the Jews and the Gentiles are, are being reminded in this passage, both those who have grown up with the privileges that came with the Jewish community and those who grew up with the disadvantages that are a result of being Gentiles, all, all, every one of them are brought near to God by the same means. By those last five words that we see in our passage there. If you got it open, look at it. By the blood of Christ. That's it. You know, Paul's reason for explaining this to them is to tear down the pride of the Jews and to build up the faith of the Gentiles so that these two groups will be united together as one church. Because this, this new entity that, that we call the church, that God calls the church, will better accomplish the purposes of God um, if we are united to each other. That was true then, it's still true today. Uh, you know, so Christian, there, there may be all sorts of terms to define who you are, things that are your identifier, right? Uh, for those in Ephesus, the, the major one was Gentile and Jews. For, for all of us today, we have all sorts of terms, right? Man or woman, boy or girl. We might be identified by our ethnicity, our, our jobs, our interests, our hobbies, you know. And, and those are all fine. It's fine to have those identities as, as a secondary identity. But if you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, if God has bought you and brought you near to him by grace through faith, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the deepest and most certain and eternal identity is that of belonging to God. Your identity is that as a Christian. Your identity is that as a, a child of God. And the beauty here is that the assaults of life cannot take this away. It cannot. This nearness to God is forever. The intimacy that we have with God is secure by the blood of Christ. And so if you don't have this nearness, if you, if you hear this, and uh, you know, uh, I just want you to know that it can be yours. You know, as you look to, to Christ alone for the forgiveness of, of sin, it can be yours. And I'll, I'll tell you this, that that doesn't make perfect sense to you. If you hear that and you think, well, that's very Christian sounding, what are you talking about? Talk to me after the service. Email me, call me, text me, whatever. Let's go grab coffee because there's nothing, nothing more important that you understand what that means. Um, let's, let's pray.